The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast produced by RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and this is our 20th episode. Yay! A big shout out to our producer, Price Atkinson, who makes it all sound seamless, and to our executive director, Bob Inglis, for his never-ending support, cheerleading, and outreach to potential guests. Not to mention a big shout out to you, listeners, for giving us a chance and tuning in to hear our episodes every Tuesday. So today, I'm so happy to bring you my conversation with the outgoing congressman of the 19th District of Florida, Mr. Francis Rooney. Mr. Rooney is one of a handful of conservative city members of Congress who supports a price on carbon. He is the co-sponsor of not one, not two, but three, at least, carbon pricing bills. And just to highlight a few, his name is on the Market Choice Act the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, which is the bill that our friends at the Citizens Climate Lobby advocate for, and our personal favorite, the Raise Wages, Cut Carbon Act, which was originally the brainchild of Bob Inglis. We were so proud when Mr. Rooney picked up where Bob left off, albeit 10 years after Bob first introduced his bill. On that note, it's really sad to me that we are still in a place where lawmakers are not seriously putting a carbon tax on the table because... Really, it's the way to go, and Mr. Rooney and I will get into that. Truly a successful businessman, Mr. Rooney answered the call to public service when President George W. Bush appointed him ambassador to the Holy See from 2005 to 2008. He has been serving the 19th District since 2017, and he's retiring at the end of this term because he achieved what he came to Congress to do, and I have mad respect for that. Super jealous, too, that part of his retirement plans include going to Spain to tend his family's vineyard there. So there's going to be a little wine talk in our conversation as well. But before I talk to Mr. Rooney, we have this week's Whose Line Is It Anyway? So far, our quotes have been positive, coming from the mouths of eco-right heroes. But today, I tried to trip up my colleagues with this quote. Climate change is the perfect pseudoscientific theory for a big government politician who wants more power. Why? Because it is a theory that can never be disproven. I will read that again. Climate change is the perfect pseudoscientific theory for a big government politician who wants more power. Why? Because it is a theory that can never be disproven. Let's hear what the team had to say, starting with Bob Inglis. With that level of scientific disputation, I've got to assume it's one of the big merchants of doubt, and that would be Myron Ebel. Pivoting to Alex Bosmoski. Whoever said it wasn't being original, because this climate change is a tautology. Milieu has been around for a long time. Um, but among high-profile folks who might have said this recently, I'll guess Tucker. Wen Lee. Ooh, I don't know. Um, I'll say James Inhofe. And our esteemed producer, Price Atkinson. Could it be James Taylor from the Heartland Institute? 
Listeners, if you were thinking Texas Senator Ted Cruz, you were right. The junior senator from Texas said this a lot when he was on the presidential campaign trail in 2015. So Alex may be right. The concept has been around for a while, but it's seared in my brain as coming from Senator Cruz. And now, my conversation with Representative Francis Rooney. Welcome back, listeners. I am so, so thrilled to welcome to the podcast Mr. Francis Rooney, who represents the 19th Congressional District in Florida. Mr. Rooney, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. So before we talk about climate change, I really wanted to just talk about my other favorite thing in the world with you for a second, and that is wine. Mm -hmm. I just read that you and your family own a winery in Spain. We do. I'm looking forward to spending more time on it. So funny story, or maybe not so funny, more sad story. Before the coronavirus put the kibosh on international travel, a group of girlfriends and I had been finalizing plans to go wine tasting in Spain. Um, We were going to spend a couple of days in San Sebastian and then head over to the Rioja region. And we're kind of figuring out where exactly we wanted to go and stay. This is a group of friends. We've done this a couple of times in France and all over California. So we were really, really disappointed that we didn't get to take our trip. But now I think I'm going to just have to ask you where to go. And then we'll know where to go once the border, you know, once we're able to take a trip like that. Well, Rioja is a, a great area. The, 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 the kind of the heart of Rioja is LaGuardia. There's one small hotel in LaGuardia called Los Perales. There's another one whose name escapes me and they're a small one. But we always stay in Lagrano because that's where our winemaker lives and it's a little bigger town. It's not so far east that you can't access LaGuardia and the valley quite so, easily. We always stay at a place called uh, IA Mayor Hotel. Can we come visit your winery? Sure. Yeah, if you go over there for sure. We have people come all the time. <laughs> we, know, we really don't have a winery like you're thinking of. Right. Our winery is basically like those storage sheds you, you see people, you know, have mm-hmm. in industrial parks, but it's clean and it's a real winery and it's got tanks and uh, uh, oak barrels and we got a 94 and a 93 on our first harvest. Nice. So it's good wine. It's just not a fancy building, but it's right well, there at the south side of the city of Loardia. I We did find that when we were in France that um, some of the winemakers, it was sort of the same deal. They didn't really have the big fancy Napa Valley tasting rooms, which is fine. We just want good wine. We don't care if we're drinking it. Yeah. In no, we still set you up the tasting right there in the barrel room. And it's, it's, it's humble, but it's clean and, 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 and you know, very uh, efficient for making the wine. Well, you're lucky that you get to do that when you um, retire, when you grow up from Congress. Um, one thing that I did hear a lot about when we were in, um, we were in the Rhone Valley last summer, and every place that we visited and tasted talked about the impact that climate change had on the grapes. Are they seeing that down in Spain too? They are, and that's one of our assets, getting into the game late. We don't have a lot of low-level uh, vineyards. Most of ours are five, 600 meters up to 900 meters. Yeah. Kind of the equivalent in Napa would be Ann Colgan or O'Shaughnessy or Pride. Well, it's, uh, I guess we better go before climate change <laughs> does something bad to the Rioja grapes. Now, listeners, I promise this is not a wine um, tasting podcast. We are going to get into the heart, which is that Mr. Rooney was one of the only 
conservative lawmakers to put his name not on one and not on two, but on three, unless I'm missing one, maybe it's four carbon pricing bills, which yeah. is quite an accomplishment. And we thank you for that. I think there's one or two of them where I'm the only person. And then there's a couple of them where I'm on there with Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. Right. So the ones that I found were the Market Choice Act, which was um, the, the bill that originally was introduced by Mr. Curbello, who appeared mm -hmm. on this podcast um, over the summer. And then I found the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, which is the, um, the bill that our friends over at CCL, Citizens Climate, Climate Lobby, advocate for. Mm -hmm. And then I also saw the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act, which was modeled after our own Bob Inglis's bill from mm -hmm. 2009 or 2000. And really, you know, the key is to get the tax up over $50 so that it prices out coal and moves towards cleaner fuel. There's a lot of great arguments as to what to do with the money. They're all good. For sure. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, while we would love to see that be a revenue neutral um, carbon tax, that if it was going to be returned to Americans as a dividend or you're going to use it to pay down our ginormous um, federal deficit, I think you could see groups like Republican.org getting behind um, various ways to to dispense with the, that revenue. It's just important to get that tax, as you said, at a level that is high enough that it actually makes a dent in the um, fossil fuel consumption. Yeah, well, Foreign Affairs a few years ago, making the argument that you need to get up over $50 to influence the uh, demand curve. All right, well then, what do we have to do? You, um, I read an e, e Daily interview with you um, from last week where you talked about how it's been really hard to get Republicans to hold hands and join you. And you mentioned you're the only name on a couple of these bills. And, you know, I, I, after the 2018 election, if I could just backpedal a little bit, um, Kevin McCarthy, I think, recognized out of that election that to win suburban voters, there needed to be not just a stance of we're against these things, but to be for some some carbon, uh, some climate action. And they had those suite of 13 different bills. And, you know, the Trillion Trees Act, I think, was the one that got the most, um, the most media coverage. And, you know, and I respect the starting small, everyone, you kind of have to meet people where they are, and they might not feel comfortable going with a full comprehensive measure. But it seems to me that especially with the younger generations wanting to see bigger, bolder action, that we need to come up with something that is a good counter to the Green New Deal that's the same kind of caliber in terms of really addressing the issue. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, we've got to get on the field on the environmental and climate change issue the way we used to be under President Nixon and the Bushes and Reagan and everybody else. And we've left the field. And, and I've given the, the Republican leadership tons of polling of all different kinds of voters, Republicans, young and old, urban and not, uh, women, men, et cetera. And there's a lot of support for dealing with the climate, the issues, cha the challenges of the climate. But other than that tree thing of Brian Wester Westerman, they, they haven't really been able to get out in front on uh, anything that's aggressive, even though almost every major CEO and investment banker and former member of the Council of Economic Advisors and former Secretary of State is all for carbon tax. Right. It seems like there's a lot of cover to be for a carbon tax. And maybe it's the T word that scares people. But at the end of the day, you know, when you have a solution that is the preferred solution of economists 
and it's something that the environmental community can live with, I feel like you've hit, you know, you've hit that sweet spot. Uh, yeah, it's uh, even this week, Conoco, the CEO of Conoco said he's for it. So you've got Chevron, Conoco, Shell, and BP, and Exxon all for it, and Total. Well, what do we need to do then? How do we, you know, so what would your advice be to a group like ours where we are? Well, obviously, I couldn't get it done with the Republicans, but the Speaker of the House uh, did it uh, for us. And I think that as long as the Democrats have the House, that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. The Senate's a bigger challenge. But then how do we how do we influence, how do we start to get at some of those members? Is it um, if... Well, if I hate to say lose the Senate because I'd much <laughs> rather keep the Senate. But I don't think you're going to get a lot of those members on a carbon tax. It's just this rigid ideology. Unfortunately, both sides are plagued by some fairly rigid ideologies right now. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and we often um, talk about trying to find that you know, the far middle, so to speak, that spot where we can all kind of overlap. And um, I think that's, you know, even more important in the Senate. And so even kind of presuming that the Senate were to, um, to flip after the November election, unless they do away with the filibuster, which I'm a former Senate staffer, so I'm kind of a purist. So um, as I understand it, though, the 60 vote thing was some kind of compromise to limit real life filibusters. And I don't see why they don't just go back to real live filibusters like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I was right. kidding with some of the Republican senators, my friends. I said, well, make, make Schumer stand up there for five, four or five days, talk, read the newspaper. I remember actually when I was a staffer, this was probably in the late 90s, that um, Senator Russ Feingold from Wisconsin, he did a real live filibuster and he was reading about cheese and it was like, and goat cheese. <laughs> Other names are, I mean, he just kind of had like a cheese dictionary or something that he was reading from, which was really informative and a little funny, but also you've got to respect, right? That if you're, if you're trying to delay something rather than just having your objection and eating up time on the clock, that to be actually on the floor and have possession of the time, you know, those were, I guess that was a different era. And it's going to take some fundamental change in the Senate to get the Republican side of things tuned up on a carbon tax. I can tell you that because I've talked to a lot of them. Right. But is it, if, if they won't listen to the economists and they won't listen to those industry leaders you just mentioned, you know, is it, is there something we could be doing at the grassroots level? Is it letters, emails? Is it events? Is it science briefings? Like, how do we help flip? The, the only way you're going to influence one, any of these elected people's money, cutting it off or adding some. I know that's a little uh, pessimistic, but uh, hey. it's there. I did some research on this. It used to be uh, 20 years ago that the oil industry, for example, gave money to both sides, like most companies do. Now it's almost entirely Republican. But the oil companies aren't the problem either, okay? Right. They're for the carbon tax. I'm right. not saying that. I mean, tricky times. So kind of to go back, I feel like I am talking to you or questioning you backwards from how I imagined in my head. We kind of jumped right in with some of the bills that you have put your name on. And where I really meant to start was what first compelled you to get interested in this issue. Scoop I'm a business guy, so I'm used to just making database decisions. And I read all the stuff. I read the executive branch study, the, the uh, climate change study, the, uh, a lot of the different materials have been published by the geologic or geostatic or whatever it is, mm-hmm. agency about sea level rise and, and uh, changes in the composition of Florida Bay, things like that, the business about uh, melting glaciers in Greenland and higher uh, 
acid and in the uh, coastal waters that's bleaching the coral. And then there's the heat content making the bigger storms. And I read all this stuff. I said, well, the IPCC, you know, so that just makes sense to me. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think we need term limits because as long as this is a professional career job, a professional and political class, uh, there's always going to be this pull to keep your money and your votes. Yeah, and I should just note for our listeners that you you were elected in 2016, started serving in 2017, and you are retiring at the end of this term. So you term limited yourself. Yeah, when I ran, I said no more than three terms, but I think two's enough. We got all the money for the Everglades restoration. We got the drilling ban in the eastern Gulf of Mexico extended 10 years. Uh, we've done everything I expected to try to accomplish. So why stick around and endure the pain? Wow. I mean, I really wish that other people felt the way you do. I do think having a little more turnaround. I heard on a podcast that I listened to um, this morning, actually, Pantsuit Politics, that of the 435 races, house races, that only 22 or 25 of them are actually a race. Yeah, it, I saw some figures to that effect as well. And I also saw some figures that back in the, even as late as Clinton's time, like two thirds of the races were races yeah. decided in the general. And now it's very few. Right. So you don't have the, the need to kind of shift your, I mean, I, I hate when people say, oh, well, this person 20 years ago was against climate change. You know, somebody like our executive director, Bob Inglis, when he was first in Congress, it wasn't an issue that he cared about. He didn't really think much of it. And then when he had his epiphany, he was able to change his mind. And I think we're all living human beings and we make adjustments and we change, you know, beliefs change. You decide to, you know, take something on and make it your priority. But when you have a safe seat like that, maybe you're not as compelled to listen to what your constituents are saying because you just know at the end of the day, unless you're primaried, that you're probably going to come back. Well, or it can also be the opposite, that all you really have to do is listen to what your constituents say, mm -hmm. whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. That's not necessarily leadership, but that's keeping elected. No, that's true. I worked for John Warner in the Senate and... Oh, he's a great guy. Good friend of mine. Oh, miss him so much. And... You know, 2007, 2008 was when he did his climate change bill with Joe Lieberman. And mm -hmm. I remember so clearly um, he really angered the rural co-ops in Virginia when he decided to do this climate change bill. So all these rural co-ops from basically all of the mid-Atlantic, it wasn't just Virginia. And the one guy who was their leader, who didn't think very much of me, he was, you know, saying to Senator Warner, how could you abandon us? How could you abandon Virginia? And you, you know, you introduced this bill and then it got less favorable to us in markup. And Senator Warner looked at him and said, did you support the bill going into markup? And they all kind of looked at each other. Well, no. He said, well, then why, why was I going to give you more in the bill after markup if you didn't support it to start? Like, this is how the sausage is made. And sometimes you're elected to do what's right for the nation or for the planet and not just what is right for your little corner of the earth. You know, I really respect that. There are many John Warners or Mark Warners out there. Yeah, we need more. We need more of that bipartisan spirit and that cooperation and the willing to, willingness to roll up your sleeves and, and get something done. And I also heard that the Climate Solutions Caucus wasn't necessarily super active this past year. No, Ted, Ted hasn't really wanted to do much with it. I've talked to him a few times and 
you know, I think, I don't know, for whatever reason, Carlos got more out of Democrats than I've been able to do. Well, we wish you all the best when you retire. I'm going to find your winery. If, and uh, in the meantime, maybe in the next uh, wave of, of quarantine, I'll have to practice uh, drinking Rioja so that I there you go. know do what that. I'm looking for. <laughs> well, you're, are you in Washington? I'm in D.C., yes. Yeah. There's a store called the Wide World of Wines on Wisconsin Avenue. Okay. Right up, right up uh, north of the Safeway, up there near where Trader Joe's is in the okay, uh, Chinese yeah. Cultural Building. And you can Google Wide World of Wines on Wisconsin Avenue. That guy has got a fantastic collection of all kinds of wines. He's a boutique wine guy, but especially a lot of uh, Spanish and Rioja wines. All right, I'll check it out. Thanks yeah. for the recommendation. And happy all the things to you. Election Day, retirement, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And well, same to you. Thank you very much. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Congratulations, Price. Here we are again, the end of another great week. And uh, we're just going to keep going up from here, I hope. 100% we are. I, I want to get this in before we go any further, Chelsea, because I forgot our new member shout out last week. So let me go ahead and get this in because I know you, you and I want to at least uh, share a few thoughts on the debate last week, the final POTUS debate. Um, but real quick before we do that, uh, shout out to a few new Republican members, Eric M. in Washington State, Jim C. in Massachusetts, Janet C. in California, Timothy in Virginia, and Colette M. in Kansas. So thank you guys for signing up and, and joining us at Republican. You want to do that, just go to republican.org forward slash join. It is that simple. You can get great uh, information from us. You can take part in uh, polls that we send out. We get we try and get a lot of feedback. We don't spam you. And, of course, weekend review, Chelsea Henderson, our all-star host, her baby that goes out every Friday. You don't want to miss it. Join us at Republican.org. That's right. I always try to keep it informative and light. So this week we had a little collage of some of us who've already voted with our early voting selfies. And um, and and I did touch on on last week's debate in our most recent edition of Weekend Review and Price, what I shared was my most favorite tweet. Now, I try to stay away from Twitter because I feel like it can just make you go crazy, mm -hmm. right? So I happened to notice that climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, I just think she had the best reaction. And that was that um, her tweet was kudos to Kristen Welkner, Welker for finally asking the right climate question during a presidential debate. Not do you believe in it, but rather, how are you going to fix it? And, you know, that's something that I feel like Bob really drilled that out of me, the asking, do you believe in climate change? Because it's not something to believe in. Exactly. It's happening. How are you going to fix it? And so, you know, we did see a um, the longest climate conversation in a presidential debate, Um in this, that last POTUS debate between Biden and Trump. So it was refreshing to see that it registered as a top six issue for Welker to bring up. 
Yeah, she did a great job. She was by far the best moderator uh, so far of the debate season, and I guess will be the the best because um, we only had three, one uh, Veep and two POTUS. But the, I think the threat of the mute button certainly worked its magic. Um, you know, it was very – it didn't seem like it was used very much, but the intended consequence of it being there and the threat, I thought, I thought it worked. Um, but, you know, taking a larger step back, I think the fact that climate was – you had two presidential debates. Climate was involved in both of them, which to me is incredibly significant. Um, and it was part of the v- – it came up in the VP debate as well. well so yeah, yeah. So, all three of the debates. I mean, it wasn't a, a main topic debate for Chris Wallace's that he moderated, but he threw it in there, which I thought was – I mean, at the time I was we, – we've talked about this, I think, how – how stunned we were um, because we weren't expecting that to come up and um, certainly glad that it did. You know, Price, I was on the, in the Washington Post and they're online um, on their webpage the other day and they had, they were talking about this, right? Like climate change and the presidential debates because we had a long dry, dry spell between the last time it came up and this cycle, this election cycle you had to go back to the um, 2008 to see it come up. And they had a clip on the Washington Post of um, George Bush and Al Gore talking about climate change at the, one of their presidential debates. And what was so striking to me, aside from the fact that they mostly agreed with each other, except for the, you know, ha- what to do about it and how like seriously to um, take the problem. Yeah was just how cordial they were with each other. And while one was talking, I was waiting for the but, but, but. Yeah. Because, you know, we didn't just see that in the presidential debate, right? If you think about the primary debate on the Democratic side this year, those guys were always interrupting each other when they had a big field. And, you know, that was fresh in our our memories, I guess, when then it happened in that first presidential debate between Trump and Biden. But it was almost like watching something from a different universe because, Gore and Bush were just so cordial and agreed, but disagreed on some aspects. And I was like, wow, I forgot that back in 2000, which I would have said in 2000 felt partisan. It didn't feel partisan looking back on it. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, you compare it to the first debate. I mean, last for me, last night was the comedy hour that I came for finally, because the first one was a total train wreck. Last night, I could only sit there and laugh a few times because I thought Trump was was I thought he did a, a really good job last night. Um, I, I thought he was it, it, as substantive as substantive Donald Trump could possibly be. I mean, clearly there were many lies and many falsehoods that he he kept telling, which the looks, the comedy hour that I'm you know kind of hitting at is the looks he kept giving the camera, just the smirk. I mean, at some point you just got to kind of just that let that it go. Trump was giving the camera, yeah. or that Biden was? that Trump was. You know, a couple times he looked like right Trump- into the camera and just kind of winked, almost like winked and like smirked, and it was hilarious. I don't feel like I picked up on that, but I definitely picked up on Biden's facial expressions when Trump was saying things that were not credible. And yeah. and I'm going to push back on you a little bit. I don't think that I want to give him credit for looking like a good leader or presidential because he didn't interrupt as much or because he didn't, 
you know, because he wasn't as rude. I thought some of his answers still lacked substance. He still hasn't, you know, we're getting way, way, way off the topic here. And hopefully we're not um, um, turning any listeners away. But healthcare is something I care a lot about because like it or not, my option right now is to be on the Affordable Care Act plan. And if that is vacated, what are my options? And that's what I haven't heard him say is I've heard him say what he doesn't want to do and what he's dismantled and what he wants to get rid of. But I haven't heard him say what he wants to put in its place. And that concerns me in addition to some of the climate stuff. And I'm not trying to say he was substantive last night. That's not what I'm saying. But he he at least talked about some issues coherently. The first debate was anything <laughs> but coherent. You know, but I thought that the there was the, the Biden stuff is really where you started hitting on, okay, where have I heard this before? Clearly he's gonna get dinged politically on, you know, transitioning from the oil industry, but it's something that we all know and ultimately want because oil is a finite resource. But you know the And fi- I feel like the oil industry knows it too, right? That's yeah. why they are investing in renewable energy and not that anyone wants to be told your industry is on the way out the door, but they are prepared. You know, the big and smart ones, those companies that know that a price on carbon is the way to go, or, you know, they are making those renewable investments because they know they can't rely on oil forever. <laughs> so. Well, the, you know, accountability is a conservative concept, and Bob talks about it quite a bit, you know, when he talks about keeping your ash on your property, right? Because last night when they talked about the fence line, you know, where where he grew up and lived in, in Delaware, I mean, he grew up in, in, in Pennsylvania, but then living in Delaware, you know, and the oil on the windshield, I mean, there's there's obviously, you know, hidden costs there, um, you know, as far as health care, but the accountability side of things, coal-fired oil pl- you know, plants there where he lived, and there's no accountability. And, you know, he talked about, he didn't say the word accountability, but again, it's something that immediately when he started talking and going down that road, I said, yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly what Bob talks about all the time. The elimination yeah. of all subsidies clear, clearly is something that, you know, we believe and would like to see in terms of a true level free market playing field, get rid of subsidies for s- solar wind, get rid of them for oil and gas. I mean, let's just yeah, go with a straight sure. true market playing field. But then the question that got me at the end was, and Trump tried to stick it to him, was when Trump said, is he going to get China to do it? And I said, there is an easy way to get China to do it right now. Easy. Carbon tax. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I I felt like um, President Trump didn't really understand what Welker was getting at with that question, which is really an environmental justice, climate justice question, right, that um, we do tend to have our more dirty um, factories and and power plants and so forth in poor neighborhoods. And then those um, neighborhoods suffer health wise from the impact. So I thought Biden did have a stronger answer on that one. And yeah, let's have a let's clear the playing field and eliminate subsidies for all. And I hate that argument where eliminating a subsidy becomes raising taxes on someone. I just feel like that's really disingenuous. And so, yeah, it was it it was definitely more substantive and. Now it's up to the voters to decide. So if you haven't voted, we're not telling you or asking you to vote one way or another. We are a 501c3. We educate. We talk about things. We have personal opinions. But mostly our democracy is stronger 
the more people who participate in our free and open elections. So get out there. If you're uncomfortable doing it in person, check your state and see if it's too late to request a mail-in ballot. I know that here in Maryland, Price, I'm thinking on election day, there are a lot of older people in my community. I might just see if anyone needs a ride because we've we also have fewer polling um, stations open. So the one that would normally be walkable is closed. So I just feel like that's a little way that I can give back. I can have the windows open. We can wear our masks and be safe and just try to help a neighbor or friend out and make sure the more of us vote, the I think the fairer an election is. So. And, and the louder your voice is, the more the more people that vote, the louder each of our voices is. Um, right. And we've seen that your vote matters. People lose big elections by small margins. And and in part of that Gore Bush um, article I was reading about climate change that I referenced earlier, they talked about Gore losing by, you know, 500 votes or something in Florida. And you think about how many people live in the state of Florida 500 votes might seem like a lot in a not as populated place, but 500 votes in a state that size is insane. So your vote counts. Um, actually, on the, to, to take it to a funny place, um, in our PTA, one of my best friends was running for PTA president many years ago. She had an opponent. And then it came down to voting and my friend didn't vote for herself. She voted for the other person because she's very humble. And she was like, oh, it just feels... Um, like I'm boasting too much or whatever to vote for myself and the other woman won. And we were like, why didn't you vote for yourself? You have to vote for yourself. But that one vote was the difference in our little PTA election. So case in point right there. All right. You, uh, <laughs> you mentioned personal opinion and on our way out the door, I got to get yours on something. It's always a topical debate. Halloween is this weekend your favorite or what the best Halloween candy is, ready, set, go. And don't tell me like grunts or Jolly Ranchers or Sour Patch Kids. Ew, gross. No, I am not really a candy person. I'm more of a chocolate person. Yeah, me too. And I will say I'm not the person who is like raiding my kids Halloween, you know, hauls. I kind of, now this is going to sound super snobby. But I do like a little bit of a higher caliber chocolate. <laughs> but when I'm like, if I'm feeling like I just need a little pick me up or whatever, my guilty pleasure is a Twix bar. Okay. I knew you had to have chocolate and it had to be like some high level dark chocolate that you would never <laughs> find in a kid's, you know, uh, trick or treat bag because you've right, got to have. We're not talking about that like special dark little Hershey's bar. Like that's not what I'm talking about. No, you're talking about like some Giardelli special, like limited edition dark, you know, that you pair with your, you know, your cab salves or your Zinfandels here in the wintertime. You bet, Price. You I knew know it. me all too well. I knew it. I knew it. All what right. about yours? Um, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a big dessert guy or big candy guy, but if I'm gonna have candy, I like, I'm with you. I like chocolate. You know, I'm the standard Reese's. If there's a Reese's in there, that's always the first thing I pick. But, you know... I love a good crunch, a good, uh, what is it, crackle. The I, I think they're almost interchangeable, mm -hmm. or Mr. Good Bar. They're, I mean, they're almost, they usually come in like a bag, and it's kind of like an assortment. But you've got the, what is it, the crackle, the crunch, and the Good Bar. I think usually in that bag, I any of those will do. But, 
you know, chocolate is, is the name of the game. But, you know, my wife and I, she is the chocolate person in the house and the candy person. She won't touch the sugary stuff. She likes the chocolate stuff, too. So usually we'll get maybe like an extra bag and hopefully it won't all be given out to trick-or-treaters. So we get to keep a few pieces for ourselves. Well, I haven't had a trick-or-treater at my house. I live on a very dark street for a number of years. And then this year, I believe that trick-or-treating isn't being allowed because of COVID. So the town is trying to do find some other ways for the kids who are young enough to want to costume up. So I'm going to turn this around and ask you, best Halloween costume you've ever worn? Oh, boy. While you're thinking, I'm just going to say that when I was working for Senator Warner he got invited to a Halloween costume party by somebody, some group in Arlington that was um, for climate change. This is back in, you know, 2007, 2008. And so of course the scheduler showed me the invitation. He wasn't going to go, but you know, did I want to go in his place or should she RSVP for me? And I said, no, but I was joking with him and said, oh, you don't want to go because you don't have a costume idea, but you could dress up like a greenhouse gas. <laughs> and he looked at me and he was like, Chelsea, there's one lesson that I can impart on anyone in politics. It is never dress in costume because no matter how clever you think that costume is, it will be political to someone. So he's like, I avoid costume parties and i was like okay i hear you i'll give you a here and now probably the the old costume best costume when i was a kid was probably rocky when i was in a major big time rocky phase that's a good one and then probably the the now would probably be buzz lightyear just because i love buzz lightyear from toy story so much so one of those two You would make a great Buzz Lightyear. Oh, Uh, I can see it. (laughs) To infinity and beyond. And beyond. And we will get out of here. Yep, go ahead. I I have to share mine. Jesus Christ. I thought you shared yours. This is not going to surprise you. My my favorite costume. I told you the John Warner story. But my favorite costume. So I have some really, really close friends who got married on Halloween four years ago. Or like the weekend before Halloween didn't fall on the weekend four years ago. And um, they love Halloween. And I felt an enormous amount of pressure because they're also really creative. And I'm not, you know, I'm a writer. I'm creative that way. I am not creative with costuming. I always found Halloween stressful trying to come up with what the kids were going to be. So I was so proud of this costume. I went as champagne. (laughs) I can see it now. (laughs) I had a gold sequin skirt and I got um, a green, like, faux leather jacket to be the bottle, right? So, like, the, the gold sparkle represented the bubbles. And then on Etsy, I found this headband that had champagne corks coming out of the top and feathers. And you know what? Everyone knew what I was. It was amazing. <laughs> wow. Well, we've totally fallen off the, uh, the climate rails. But we will be back next week. There will be a lot to talk about a whole lot to talk about, and we will do it next week. But Chelsea, in the meantime, happy Halloween. Hope you guys, uh, all our listeners, stay safe out there and have a, uh, have a fun Halloween weekend. And may you get all your favorite candy. See you next week. Ooh.